to my little friend. And welcome to episode 14 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Beretta Cast. This is Glenn Peoples speaking. Something a little bit different for you this time, we're going to go to church. Uh, what I'm going to be playing in this podcast is a sermon that I preached in our church just yesterday on the, what date is it today? Well, it's the 29th, so it must be the 28th New Zealand time, the 28th of July 2008. And I was asked to preach on Mark 13 the Olivet Discourse, uh, in one sermon. So there's a lot that I couldn't cover because obviously it's a it's a pretty sizable passage and I only had, in theory, about half an hour. I ended up taking about 50 minutes. But nobody seemed to mind. So I'm feeling lazy and that's what's on today's podcast. I hope you find it interesting. Uh, the name of the perspective that I advance on that passage, I didn't use the terminology in the sermon, but it's what's known as preterism. Um, and hopefully what I have to say in that sermon is fairly self-explanatory. So without further ado, let's go to church. Alright, we're rolling. Okay. Mark 13. Um, the part that I'll be talking about is really from verse 1 to 31. Now this is a long uh, passage of teaching and it's reproduced in three of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark and Luke although in slightly different versions and it's become known as the Olivet Discourse because it was a teaching given from the Mount of Olives the same place where the Sermon on the Mount was given the talk that I'm going to be giving tonight isn't, well it is a sermon because I'm standing behind the pulpit but it's, it's full of what a lot of people would call head knowledge I don't like that term, but it's the term that gets used. It's not a lesson on biblical morality, how we should live, or on sin and grace, or on living as the people of God in the world, or on what you might think of as really practical subjects. I make no apology for that, because the Bible contains a lot of stuff like this. It contains doctrine, it contains prophetic writings that need to be studied and explained, and so that's what I'm going to be doing tonight. Secondly, what I'm going to talk about tonight, what I, well, my perspective on it, is somewhat controversial in the Christianity of today. What I will be presenting to you is at odds with what a large number of Christians think about this passage of Scripture. That's okay, because they're wrong. So you're in good hands. Don't judge the view presented here based on how popular it is. If popularity were the standard of truth, there would never have been a reformation. And thirdly, something I do apologise for, is that it's a really long passage. And as a result, what I say will be a little bit shallow. It's going to be just digging into the surface and it'll be simplifying a lot. And a lot of the detail will be uh, uncovered. We could have talked on this passage every Sunday night for the next couple of months and we'd still have a long way to go. But we're not going to do that. So my five pages isn't even going to get close to covering everything. And I've already consumed plenty of time explaining that this is the case. Hopefully what it will do is whet your appetite to look at it further yourself. So let's start by opening our Bibles, because we're going to need them. Now Mark's already read the, the text, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 onwards. Now I've divided that up into, into several questions. There's a question of when are these things going to take place? What are these things that Jesus is talking about in the first place and then why does any of that actually matter so the first question is when are these things supposed to happen well Jesus appears to be quite explicit in all the gospels that record this conversation in Matthew, Luke and Mark so I'll, I'll quote from Mark 13.30 because that's the passage that I'm preaching from I tell you the truth 
This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, don't you doubt this. Heaven and earth may pass away, but I'm not wrong. Trust me. This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. So right off the bat, we enter into the controversy. Because the controversy is over whether or not these things have actually happened or not. The fact is, a lot of Christian writers and teachers don't believe that these things took place in the first century, within that generation. That belief leads to the attempt to reinterpret the biblical terms, especially the term, this generation, because it, looks, it really does look like it happened in the first century, in that generation, and in order to make it mean something else, you've got to make the phrase, this generation, mean something quite different. And such attempts are forthcoming. For example, if you have an NIV in front of you, look at the phrase this generation in verse 30. And at the word generation, there'll be a footnote. And the footnote says in the one I have in front of me, where are we? Or race. Okay, so as a way of avoiding the obvious implication that these events were fulfilled in the first century, some interpreters have said that the Greek word genea, which is the word translated generation in this verse, actually means race. Now the NIV translation ultimately didn't go that way, but you can see that some people involved in that translation did think that, because it found its way into a footnote. So according to this view, what Jesus is saying is, the Jewish people as a race won't cease to exist, they won't die out, they won't pass away, until all these things have taken place. So the Jewish people will, will live until the end times when Jesus comes back, and that's when it's all going to happen, and they won't have passed away yet. Now it's true that on a few very rare circumstances the word genea can mean ethnicity. But in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are the only Gospels that record this discussion, the word never means race, not even once. So I'm going to go through some examples of the way this phrase, hutos genea, this generation, is used, just to illustrate the well, the facts of the matter. Matthew 12:41 is the first one I'll look at. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's comparing a former generation, namely the ones who lived in Nineveh, with this generation. So there it simply means generation. The second one, and I won't bore you with too many examples, there are only three I think. Matthew 23, verses 29 through to 36. Incidentally, in Matthew's Gospel, this is the passage that appears just before of the, the discussion that we're talking about tonight from Mark. So Matthew 23:39 to 36. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. No wonder it's not there. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say... If we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part in, with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. So he's talking about the sins of previous generations, and this only makes sense if we think of it in terms of people who lived at a certain time, not race, because previous races, no, the forefathers were the same race. He's talking about previous generations 
and he's saying that the things that they have done will bring consequences upon this generation. So that only makes sense if it actually means you know, a generation living at a time. But I'll just say a word about what would this passage mean if the word actually meant race. Let's see. All the sins of your fathers will come upon your race. It would mean that the Jewish people will suffer throughout all their history on earth because of the sins of their former generations and this is the judgment of God. Now tragically, perhaps not because of this word, but tragically some Christians in history, even including people like Martin Luther, a large number of popes and plenty of members of the churches, have advocated anti-Semitism or racism against Jewish people for exactly this reason because they are the ones who killed Jesus and so they say in fact probably the most chilling example that I can think of is reflecting on Jews as they were led to the concentration camps to the gas chambers and I forget if the sign was next to the gate or they had to walk under it as they walked through the gates but basically the message was in German which I don't speak you killed Christ now we will kill you. But that's not what this text says at all. Because the phrase, this generation, is limited in scope, it's limited in time to a specific small group of people, this text has nothing to do with the current status of the Jewish people. Luke 7. And I think this, I know it's not quite the last one, but it's a short one. Luke 7, 31 to 34. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he's talking about the people who were alive when John the Baptist and Jesus were born into the world and, and, and went about their ministry. So clearly it means this generation. You might think I'm labouring the point, but I really want it to be, there to be no room for doubt. It just means this generation, people living at the time. The last example is very brief. Luke 17, 24 and 25. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Didn't mean this race because there are Jewish people alive today who are followers of Jesus. So he can only have meant people who were alive at the time and who rejected him. Okay, so the phrase means this generation. Not every point will take this long, trust me. That's when Jesus said that these events would take place. He said all these things will take place before this generation passes away. And we know what this generation means. This gives rise to a question, or rather a sceptical challenge. But wait a minute. These things didn't happen within that generation, did they? There was an attempt largely in the 20th century, but it's not, I don't want to say that it's over, it's still continuing now, but it really arose on a popular level in the 20th century to promote the belief that these things did not come to pass within that generation and that they are in our future. Now the belief existed prior to that, but in popular Christianity this is where it really picked up. Usually these claims come in, come in a rather sensational form. Put your hand up if you've ever read one of the Left Behind books. There's a couple there. Who's seen the movie? What about, what about a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth? You read that? Oh yeah, now we're going back in the day. Or, um, I won't, uh, no, won't carry on. Usually the claims come in a very sensational form, and if you've ever read the Left Behind books, they are sensational, and intentionally so. Saying that we are now living in the end times, and that signs are being fulfilled in our newspaper headlines that show us that the Great Tribulation is just around the corner. The claim comes in a couple of different forms. But one very popular view called dispensationalism, and you don't need to know all the ins and outs of it, is that 
these things were predicted by Jesus for that generation and they would have come to pass if Jesus had been successful in evangelizing the Jews and reaching them and if they had received him properly but he wasn't successful and they rejected him so unfortunately all these things were put on hold and at some point in the future the Jews will get a second shot and then all these things will kick into motion again if you read the literature you'll hear references to the prophetic clock has stopped ticking and it's going to start ticking again when, when things happen in the future and the Jews all return to Christ it's common for Christians who believe this to point to the establishment of the state of Israel in the middle of the 20th century it was in the 1940s 48? 40, I think it was in 1948 I should know that as, as a sign that well Israel has all come back now and so these things can start happening within this generation but the problem is that was 60 years ago and that's longer than a generation in any reasonable estimate when it first happened some people started getting excited saying oh right within a generation and then 30 years later nothing had happened and they said well generation 30 years so we're still okay and 40 years later they said well generation could be 40 years then 50 years I think they were still saying it but it's been 60 years so that did not happen but still some people say we just can't think that these things actually took place in that generation because somebody would have noticed and, and they didn't happen and the first thing I think we need to say to that is we should be quite careful about how willing we are to say okay Jesus predicted it but it didn't happen what are we prepared to say about Jesus I think our first course of action should be a way of if possible defending Jesus and saying if he said it happened then let, let's look at how it might have happened but secondly the reason that a lot of Christians including me for that matter are initially reluctant to think that these things took place in the first century is that we're not adequately familiar with the scripture especially the Old Testament remember and this was an important principle in the Reformation the best interpreter of scripture is scripture there are also other New Testament passages that can help us as well but when we look at biblical language in the Old Testament and then we see how it is has used again here by Jesus in Matthew 24 it makes a lot more sense as to how it could possibly have taken place in the first century it's, and it's, I think it's quite important too because if they didn't take place in the first century we've got a problem because we've got a Messiah who makes false predictions and that's not a good look and I think that once we start looking at the Old Testament use of language and the New Testament parallels we'll be able to ask what these events actually are because only when we know what they are in the first place can we say well did they take place so let's do that let's look at some examples we'll look at some examples in, in Mark 13 and also in, in Matthew where it's the same sermon being preached by Jesus or the same message to his disciples at any rate and oh hang on before we do that sorry before we do that I want to read a parable that Jesus told immediately before he launched into this teaching and that should prepare our minds for what we need to be looking for so we'll just turn to Matthew 23 because Matthew 24 is the same as Mark 13 so we'll look at Matthew 23 verses 29 I've said to 39 but that can't be right because there is no hmm wait a minute I've already read it yeah I've already read it this is just the part where Jesus said all the blood from former generations is going to come upon you it wasn't a parable that comes later alright my mistake ok so let's look at the first event and I use events that I think generate a bit of controversy the kind of events where people might say but that hasn't happened yet surely so this is the first thing Jesus said would happen this gospel shall be preached to all nations has that happened yet? you might be tempted to say no but let's turn to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost verses 1 through to 11 
when the day of Pentecost came, they, that is the disciples here, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Important. Every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Right. Now they said that there were people there from every nation under heaven. Well, I've got my doubts about that. I'm going to be the sceptic, just as some people are sceptical about about Mark 13. So are they saying that there were South American Mayan Indians who had hopped in their boats and paddled over to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost? Are they saying that there were Chinese people there? Well, no, of course not. It would be ridiculous. There was an expectation that this saying... Oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. It's, it might be seen by some as a little bit liberal to say that the Bible exaggerates sometimes, but sometimes the Bible exaggerates. The whole world, as far as they were concerned, was the whole Roman Empire. And so if you had people there from every part of the Roman Empire, you know, that, that long list of, of places that were listed there, well, the Bible's quite happy to say, well, that's every nation under heaven because the people came from miles away. And that's all that it means. If you have a problem with that, take it up with the writer of Acts because that's the way he uses the language. But if we're prepared to let Acts use that kind of language then we should also be prepared to let Mark use that kind of language. And Jesus used that kind of language because it's just the way they spoke. It was an idiom. To say every nation under heaven meant people from all around. Someone say, well, you might might have a point there, but what's this? Oh, there you go. Compare to Acts 2. What's this talk about the abomination of desolation? I can't think of anything that would have happened in the first century that would that would correspond to that, and that just sounds a bit weird. Well, let's open our Bibles again. Let's turn to Luke. To Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21, verse 20 and 21. Now recall how Matthew and Mark said it. They said, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand, standing in the place where it does not belong, then let the one who is in the city flee to the mountains and so forth. That's not quite how Luke says it. He says in verse 20, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. That's different. Why why does he put it differently? Luke is actually interpreting the language used by Jesus. He's seeing what was recorded by Matthew and Mark and he's offering an interpretation of it. Why do Matthew and Mark say, let the reader understand? There's an expectation that they should see this language and say, hang on a minute. That seems familiar. What's going on here? It was an expectation that this saying would be of immediate relevance to those who would receive this gospel, that is, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew. This makes sense because Mark, as far as we know, was the first gospel written sometime in the 60s. The other contender for that spot is Matthew, but Matthew and Mark were the earliest, as far as we know. These guys knew that the events were about to take place. Now, Luke was written slightly later, so he had the benefit of hindsight so he could connect the dots. He was able to interpret this and note that this prediction was about the siege on Jerusalem 
in AD 70. Now Luke was written slightly after AD 70, so he was able to see that and explain what actually took place. Now in case you don't know, in the 60s, not our 60s, the 60s, Rome attacked Jerusalem and the city was destroyed and the temple was sacked. The temple was finally destroyed in AD 70 and Rome took their pagan symbols and Roman ensigns into the temple killing those who were barricaded inside for protection. The abomination of desolation standing in the place where it does not belong. Makes perfect sense. That's why Luke was able to look back and see it and he was able to say when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies because he knew exactly what the abomination of desolation was. He'd witnessed it. Remember how this conversation in Mark got started? Right at the beginning of Mark 13. Oh, no need to look it up right now. It was a discussion between Jesus and some of his followers. They were talking about how wonderful the temple was and Jesus said, it's all going to get torn down. This whole discussion was explaining the events that the disciples began to ask about because they said, oh really, And when's that going to happen? And what will be the signs that it's about to take place? the whole discussion was set up as a discussion of the destruction of the temple not a discussion of the end times in case anyone really doubts that the siege and destruction of Jerusalem was a tribulation unequaled in history remember Jesus said that there's never been anything like it and there never will be again in case you doubt that there's an author named Josephus he was a Jewish man who (coughs) was perhaps regarded by some as a bit of a turncoat he went over and became a Roman essentially and was a Jewish Roman historian who documented the war of the Jews with Rome I think we've got a copy of the works of Josephus in the church library, is that right? I'm not sure either I'll I'll get you a copy if you want one but um he saw the place sorry, read about it look into his accounts he was a Jew who chronicled the siege it's blood-curdling stuff people so starving because the city was besieged that they eat refuse and they attack and rob dying men even resorting to eating shoes and grass because they were so hungry and then the horrific account of the slaughter and destruction of the temple at the end so it was pretty bad but more importantly still demonstrating that this is the worst thing that could ever have happened to a Jew living in Jerusalem at the time Think of this from the point of view of a member of the covenant, of a committed Jew, not a follower of Christ, who was living in Jerusalem and he saw Jerusalem as the place appointed by God, the promised inheritance and the temple as the very centre of the covenant, the means by which God himself dwelt in the midst of his people. It's all gone. Everything destroyed. There's only one way that he could have seen this and it's the end of the world as far as he is concerned. As the people of God, the role of Israel had come to a horrific end. Never again would there be sin offerings. The types and the shadows associated with the temple cult were no more. Now for the Christian this actually makes sense because the types and shadows are now redundant. They pointed to Christ who has now come. For this observer, however, this Jewish observer of these events, this is a terrifying historical paradigm shift like nothing else that has ever happened or could ever happen. The truth, of course, was invisible to those tenants who killed the heir. Now, that's a reference to a parable in Mark's Gospel. I won't read the whole thing. It's a parable you may be familiar with. He says there was a guy who owned a vineyard and he put some tenants over it because he was going away to attend to some business out of town. And by and by he sent someone to check on the vineyard to see how things were going. And they beat him up. They gave him the bash. And so he sent another one. And they treated him shamefully and threw him out. And so the owner of the vineyard said, what's going on here? I know, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. He's the heir of the vineyard. 
so the vineyard's going to belong to him one day, so of course they'll respect him. Did they respect him? No. The parable says, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him. And then, once he's dead, we can get it. We can get everything that he would have received. And so that's what they did. They killed him. And then, the, then Jesus said, now what will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? He said, he will destroy them. He's going to come back to where they are and he's going to destroy them and he's going to take the vineyard that is representing the kingdom of God. He's going to take it from them and give it to other people who will look after it. Now the truth of what was going on was invisible to those who lived in Jerusalem at the time who were, by the way, the tenants. They're the ones who took the, the air and they killed them. They were, they were blind to the fact that what God was doing was punishing them, taking the kingdom away from them. As far as they could see, the presence of God, God was gone. But the presence of God was not gone. The presence of God had come to them in Christ in a way more perfect and complete than they could possibly imagine. God had not left. He had arrived. No longer was there any need for a temple. We are the temple of God. Look in Ephesians 2. The old temple was made with dead stones. The Bible says that you and I are living stones which put together form the household of God in which his spirit dwells. <coughs> Let's try to stay on topic. The sun will be darkened. The stars will fall from heaven. Well, come on, Glenn. You'd think someone would have noticed if the sun had gone out. Right? Well, let's go to Acts chapter 2 again. (coughs) Acts chapter 2. This is a sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So this is it, what you're seeing right now. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's he saying? He's saying, this, what's happening right now, is what the scripture foretold. Well, come on, Peter. The sun will return to darkness. It's another example where the Bible isn't written like a newspaper account. Now, you look in the book of Revelation, for example, it's full of symbolic language exactly like this. Great visions in the heavens and terrible things happening on the earth which are symbolic of spiritual realities. The destruction of Jerusalem is a very real spiritual reality and for them it is very much as though the sun had gone out and the sky had turned to black and the stars had fallen. It was a catastrophe like nothing they had ever seen before. But these verses thus far aren't really the controversial ones this is the controversial one they will see the son of man coming in the clouds this is going to be the most contentious claim of all but we've got Jesus saying that this is going to happen within that generation that really throws a spanner in the works of some people's theology and popular Christian paperbacks like Left Behind in the kind of writing about the end times that was all the rage in the 1970s and 80s, it had become engraved on the evangelical mind that to talk about the Lord coming, coming, very important word there, must always and only refer to the return of Jesus. And it's quite a shock to learn that that's not true. It doesn't always refer to the return of Jesus. This is quite a huge learning curve 
when it comes to learning the Old Testament. And it's to the Old Testament that we have to go to find out how this language is used in history. Talking about the Lord coming in a catastrophic event in history was nothing new to Jesus' audience. They were already familiar with it. But two examples there, and a third one on a slightly different subject. Turn to Amos chapter 4. Knock, knock. It's a joke. Knock, knock. Amos. Amos Quito. <laughs> Amos chapter 4. Verse 11. Now for those who don't know who Amos was, he, he was part of a group that we refer to as the 8th century prophets, writing in the 8th century BC. He was warning Israel of what was about, sorry, Judah, the southern part of Israel, the southern kingdom it's called, of what was about to happen to them. Um, they were about to be invaded. They were going to be invaded from the south and then an army would drag them away into exile in Babylon. So that's the historical context here. And it was because of all the sins that had been committed in Israel that this was going to happen. Amos chapter 4 verse 11 and 12 I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah you were like a burning stick snatched from the fire yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord therefore this is what I will do to you Israel and because I will do this to you prepare to meet your God O Israel prepare to meet your God so did they get Yahweh knocking on the door now, well, you said you are going to meet me and here I am. It didn't happen like that. It happened when the doors were smashed down by an invading army and they were all dragged away. That's how they met their God. That's how he came to them in the 8th century. But this is an even more interesting one, I think, because of the language used. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. Remember, what did Jesus say here? He said, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, what does Isaiah have to say? That might sound familiar. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. An oracle is just a message from God. An oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Sound familiar? The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. Now, did could God settle up a cloud and, and ride to Egypt? It didn't quite happen that way. They suffered a military catastrophe. That's how God visited them. He visited them or came to them in judgment. And yet the, the prophet said that he would come to them in the clouds or on a cloud. So these are references in history to God visiting people in judgment. And in both cases, in, in Amos and in Isaiah, the fulfilment was attack, destruction and disaster at the hands of an alien power, of a foreign military. So this language, historically in the Bible, doesn't mean that God is literally going to appear before you. That there is, however, one reference in the Old Testament to the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And it's this that Jesus is actually quoting from. But, it doesn't refer to the return of Jesus. Have a look in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Now set some context here. Just beforehand, he's seeing a vision of heaven basically. It's God sitting on the throne as judge in the heavenly courtroom. That's the context here. In my vision at night, beginning verse 13, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Where is the Son of Man going in this vision? He's coming through in the clouds of heaven, all right, but which direction is he travelling? Well, he's not coming from heaven to earth. He's coming to heaven 
into the heavenly courtroom and presents himself before the throne of God. So not only does the reference to the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven not refer to the return of Jesus, but the language is drawn from a prophecy that presents Jesus ascending to heaven, to the Father. Now that took place all right at the, at the end of the Gospel. Now I know it can't mean both things. It can't mean this reference to the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven can't both refer to Jesus going up to heaven and the attack on Jerusalem, but they are related. They're related in the following way. <coughs> God, in Christ, established his kingdom. Jesus, just in, like in the parable of the vineyard, is the heir of the kingdom. That generation rejected him. But God, in, rising, in raising Jesus from the dead, has vindicated him as the rightful heir of the kingdom. And the terrible proof that this generation had killed the Son of God and rejected their God was vividly delivered when the nations destroyed the visible token of God's covenant presence with them, the temple. The Ancient of Days, from the book of Daniel, accepts Christ's work in life, death and resurrection and in demonstrating this to the tenants, he, just as the parable warned, destroyed them. So what does all this mean? <coughs> Firstly, and this is something that's often not appreciated, but I think it should be appreciated because it is a powerful apologetic. Apologetic is a, is a defense of the faith. This series of events is a vindication of who Christ is. When the time came in the 60s and leading up to AD 70, and Rome attacked Jerusalem, wreaking mass slaughter, the Christians were spared. Now why would the Christians be spared? The Romans didn't particularly like the Christians, they hated them. Well, it's because the Christians weren't there. They weren't in Jerusalem. Well, why not? Why were they not in Jerusalem anymore? You want to guess? They were warned. Who warned them? Jesus warned them. He said... When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the place that it doesn't belong, get out! Because the place is about to come down. Now that's a powerful apologetic. You've got someone who predicted events that would take place 40 years later. Now compare that to the laughing stock of biblical prophecy presented in the any day now approach to this passage, which is continually predicted these things for next year or, or just around the corner I'm reminded of how Lindsay's book 1980's Count Down to Armageddon I don't think it's still in print if it did I doubt it, it would be a particularly good seller but you compare that you compare the prophetic word of Jesus that saw its clear fulfilment in history with the nonsense that passes for Christian scholarship today secondly the absolute worthlessness of a temple mentality. It applies to Israel and it applies to us. We are the temple of God. There is no building where God is uniquely present. We don't lack a church because we meet in a bowling club. We are the church. We are the temple of God. There are those who think that this all refers to the future and they envisage some sort of rebuilt temple a real legitimate one approved by God no less which will then be tragically destroyed in the great tribulation what a load of rubbish this was done once as a vindication of Christ and it never needs to be repeated any thought of rebuilding the temple and having animal sacrifices for sin is an abomination in the eyes of God that symbol of the old covenant where a time when the Messiah has not come and the sin offerings had to be continually repeated is as unbiblical as it is offensive to Christianity. I was, um, I was at a meeting in Auckland before I, before I moved to Hamilton, which is when I got married and then I moved to Auckland again and moved down here. A long time ago, I lived in Auckland. And I was at a meeting, a kind of a revival-type meeting. It doesn't matter who the, who the preacher was or who the church was, but he was saying it was the kind of preacher who really thinks that we need very expensive churches. 
very large, elaborate, expensive churches. And he says, you think that God doesn't want expensive flash buildings? Well, let me tell you something. And he opened his Old Testament and said, look how the temple was built. Yeah, look how it was destroyed. Number three. It's actually a 2.5. It's not on the list there. Never mind. I'll read it anyway. The futility of trusting in our lineage. Now, as Christians, we might think we're pretty safe from this. It's easy to sit back and look at the Gospels where the Jews are rebuked for this. You know, oh, we've got our family tree. Oh, I'm the the great, 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 great grandson of Moses. Ooh, Moses. That's impressive. Of course, they've all got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if God would destroy the temple of these people and turn it over, turn the kingdom over to the whole world, taking it from the descendants of Moses, David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the heroes of the Old Testament faith, how foolish it is to think that we can have any sort of standing before God because of who your mum and dad are. And it happens. Not intentionally, of course, but it happens. Don't have a false sense of security. John the Baptist told the Pharisees that God could raise up stones to be better children of Abraham than them because they didn't produce good fruit. Incidentally, even then, even in that particular passage, John was talking about the same thing. He said, every tree that does not, every branch that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire and even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Well, in AD 70 it was chopped down. But never think that you belong to a Christian home and therefore you're a Christian and a part of God's household. You know, you can have a, a baptismal certificate on the wall, a confirmation certificate next to it, if you were the kind of church that did confirmations. You can be a member of, I don't know, every men's Christian, if you're, I'm a man, speaking as a man, you can go to every men's Christian breakfast, brunch, whatever, and still end up going to hell. Don't put any faith at all in that. Look what it did for the, for the nation of Israel. Look what it did for Jerusalem. Fourthly, I should say, thirdly on my list there, stay away from the sensational. What do I mean by that? You know the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready by DC Talk? You might know it, you might not. It was originally by Larry Norman. Some of the older folks might know that. The late, great Larry Norman. He died just last year, actually. I think it was last year. Or this year. Recently. Well, it was a song about the Olivet Discourse. It was called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And it talks about, you know, how you don't want to be left behind. How there was a man and wife in bed, and she turns his head, and, oh, he's gone. He's been taken, and, oh, no, you've been left behind. There's no time to change your mind, they said. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. It was all based on a complete mistake. Because the one who was left behind was the one who was left alive (laughs) in the Olivet Discourse. And the one who was taken was dead. I want to be left behind. (laughs) I would have wanted to be left behind if I were one of the people, you know, in Jerusalem at the time. My comments, I mean, that's the kind of sensationalism that that we hear. Uh, My comments relate not just to the Olivet Discourse, but to the tangent that it sends a lot of Christians on when they get it wrong. By getting it wrong, we can miss a crucial moment in salvation history. We don't see what this passage is about at all, and the result can actually be chaos. Um, For example, there are people whose evangelistic message is that people need to get saved so that they can go up in the rapture and miss out on the Great Tribulation. And that's the Gospel message. It's got nothing to do with the Gospel message. I'm simplifying, I realise. But it's usually mixed up with some sort of cartoon supervillain scheme involving the one world government headed up by Antichrist. And you know, you eventually get into talk about barcodes and, and how they're watching you through your TV screens. And I, I, I kid you not, I won't name the guy again, but he published a book about this kind of thing. He was serious. The one world government headed up by Antichrist is watching you through your television screen. I'm not saying that that was based on this text, but it's the kind of sensationalistic nonsense that you need to be very, very far from. Getting this issue right then saves a lot of embarrassment for the church and it also saves a lot of time. Do you have any idea how much time and energy and money 
is invested in a so-called end times ministry. Phenomenal! The kind of the kind of schools that exist that are devoted to this, the the productions, the media presence, not so much in this country, but in the world in general. Is that my time beeping? I'm just about finished. <laughs> is staggering. It's also disheartening when you realise that the resources that are invested in this kind of thing could be spent, oh, I don't know, presenting the gospel, supporting the persecuted church. We had someone this morning talking about the voice of the martyrs. There could be providing support to women who might otherwise abort their children. They could feed the poor. I mean, they could actually do the kind of things that the Bible tells us to do. So that's the, the last point there. Stay away from the sensational. Don't let it distract you from actually living like a Christian in the world, which unfortunately it does. Now I know I have only scratched the surface. I could probably, you know what I could probably do, I could probably say a lot more and I could probably come up with a whole list of other things. What does it mean and and what does it have to say to us? Uh, That three or, or four that I've come up with is just a sample. Hopefully what I've done is got you a little bit interested in the subject. Um, by all means look into it as much as you can yourself if, if you really are a glutton for punishment you can ask me about it but I hope that this has been at very least intellectually edifying for you hopefully it's helped you understand this part of God's word a bit more and yeah may you have many other such occasions to do so but I'll, I'll close with a word of prayer Wow, I've just seen how long I've been speaking for, I'm sorry.